Would you all turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 3? <clears throat> uh, 1 John, chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 24. It's a pretty good chunk, so you have to get your listening ears on. Uh, and uh, 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, and it says this. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, uh, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by his Spirit whom he has given to us. Would you pray with me? Our Holy Father, make your name holy in this time and place and in our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. And Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. <clears throat> our series through this book of First John has been called Confident Faith because John, the Apostle John, he wants us to have confidence and assurance of our salvation but underlying that emphasis is an assumption, isn't there? That he, he assumes that we will inevitably struggle in this area. That we will at times lack confidence and lack assurance. He knows that this is going to happen to Christians. That's why he addresses it so in depth. So how can he know with such confidence that we are going to lack confidence? Why is he so sure that we will be so insecure in our faith and in our salvation. Because he knows something about who we are and about who God is. He knows how high and holy and pure and gloriously bright the Lord is. And he knows how low and unholy and polluted and dark our sinful souls are. And most of the time we're okay with, with our state because we ignore it and we dismiss it and we explain it away. But John knows that true Christianity, it does the unimaginable. It brings us sinners near to that holy God. 
And when that happens, we can't ignore the mess anymore. We can't make excuses for it. We actually see it. We see ourselves for who we truly are, and we see him for who he truly is. And when we see that, that scandal of that, that we, are, that we are tromping on his white-carpeted living room floor with our muddy boots, we can start to feel out of place, like we don't belong. And with our eyes fixed on those footprints, we, we assume that he's scowling down at us. But we forget the very thing that's making us feel so insecure. That he is different than us. We would be scowling, but he is smiling and welcoming us further in. Because of course we are dirty. We've just been plucked out of a grave. Our walking tracks mud, but we are walking That's what he sees. And he knows that he will make us fully clean. He just wants us to look at his smiling, welcoming face in faith rather than at our muddy tracks in shame. But the difference there is not just in our minds. I mean, it's really there. The vast variance between our imperfection and his perfection his holiness and glory. It's the, it's the light we see by and live in, but it's also the light by which we see ourselves. And it exposes us so that we can't hide the dirt in the darkness. And the closer we get, the more clearly we can see by the light. And this is why, like in the Bible, this happens all the time when people come into the presence of God and they feel the the weight of their sin and fallenness. Like in Isaiah, whenever he's in the presence of God and he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's his response to being in God's presence. I wrote a a short story once from the perspective of Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest, Uh, who went with the others to arrest Jesus the night uh, when he was arrested to be taken to be crucified. And what I really wanted to do in that story was just imaginatively explore this one little scene that I've always found really fascinating. It's when Jesus steps out to meet that crew of people that are coming to arrest him, and they ask, he asks who they're looking for, and then he, he responds that I am he. And then that whole group of people fall down to the ground. So let me read you just a snippet of that story that I wrote from Malchus's perspective. He says, It was not quite volitional, our falling down, but it wasn't exactly against our wills either. It was a supernatural weight upon our souls and bodies emanating from Jesus as though a curtain was pulled back and something immense was released. Something more substantial than light, but like light, in that we could see him and ourselves better by it. We were simultaneously filled with a complex mixture of surprise and fear, respect, confusion, humility. All of this struck us so immediately upon his uttering of those words that I can't imagine another possibility than the whole lot of us drawing back and falling down. Looking back on it now, I remember it best as glory. I understood that evening why the prophet Ezekiel said when speaking of the glory of the Lord, when I saw it, I fell on my face. And that experience, it happens to people throughout the scripture. But that particular experience also shows us how being in God's presence in such a powerful way can can then be dismissed. Because what do they do? They get up and dust themselves off and they arrest Jesus, don't they? 
But to be a Christian is to be in such a relationship to God that we are regularly confronted again and again with our bankruptcy before him. For the simple reason that we are with him. That he is with us in all of his majestic perfection. And so we will have to learn how to deal with this inevitable clash. How do we deal with it? Well, for most of us, our first inclinations are not usually right. There's three bad responses that I want to point out. First is shame. Saying, I just can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. And this sounds humble, but it's actually elevating your view over God's view. And the second is works, trying to earn your right to be there, saying, I got to do more, got to do better. Again, this sounds respectful, but it's elevating your ability over God's gift. And third is just ignoring it or suppressing it, settling for cheap grace that's content with a marginal God. And I know there's all three in this room today. So I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to apply this message to each of you differently. Because there are, there's those lovers of God who are pure and sincere. Love flows freely from their faith, and yet they, they feel they never measure up. They maybe feel like fakes or failures. And then there's those who are trying to measure up, doing all they can to earn God's love, working themselves to the bone and heaping more and more burdens on their back, which inevitably fall into the backs of those around them. And then there's those who are living a casual churchianity where love plays no dominant or demanding role in their life. And they may at time to time have twinges of guilt due to their disregard of the priority God ought to have in their life, but precisely because he doesn't loom large in their lives, that guilt is relatively easily suppressed or swept to the side. And they're content with a vague sense of okayness. So there's these three groups of people that each need to hear a different message this morning. And if the wrong people get the wrong message, uh, this time will be of little good. And I'll just tell you what I'm anxious about there. Because I, I don't want to be like Satan, accusing and causing doubt in the hearts and minds of, of genuine lovers of God. And I don't want to be like the Pharisees saying, get your act together and, and earn your right standing. And I don't want to be like the casual churchianity that's laissez-faire about holiness and naive about the results of sin. So there's a balancing act, but it's one that the Apostle John, I believe, has been walking throughout this letter, and so I think I'm in good company. But as I've prayed through these wrong responses, the self-condemnation, the self-righteousness, the self-deluded, I've noticed that they have something in common. And maybe now that I've phrased them like that, you can see what they have in common too. An orientation on self. And it's something that is counteracted by the twofold calling of Christ. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another. Belief and love. That is the response to the inevitable clash between our sinfulness and God's holiness because belief and love both have something at the core of their nature. They are utterly oriented towards someone other than ourselves. That's what makes them so special and different. 
At one point, the Apostle Paul was addressing some religious arguments about legalistic rituals, and he said this, in Christ, neither, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Do you hear that? The only thing that counts for anything, he says, is faith working through love. And here in our text, when John sums up all that Jesus commands us, he says, believe in his name and love one another. And this amazing text, I think it gives us some, some, a beautiful perspective on faith and love. We learn what they really are like here. So that's what I want to do this morning is look at them each. And so let's start with love. Because John says in verse 19, speaking of love, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So he's saying if we want to know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God, we examine our lives for love. So I want to ask, what are we looking for? Like, what is love like so I know it when I see it, so I can have this assurance? And this text answers that question with that beautiful uh, part of verse 16 that says, by this we know love. How? That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And he chose to do that for you. For me. And so we have this, we have, we see purposeful, intentional action. He laid it down. That's costly. He laid down his life. And it's undeserved. He did this for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, so so this is the blueprint of what the Bible describes love is. This purposeful, intentional action for others that is costly and undeserved. That's what love looks like. So so there's relationships in your life that are exacting and demanding of your resources and of your energy. Great. You're in a situation to love like Jesus. So your spouse isn't acting in a way that you think deserves your love. You're in a situation to love like Jesus. Because the second half of this verse says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And just to make it clear that he's not necessarily talking about martyrdom, he, he gives a concrete example of what it means to lay down our lives. It's not just a way of dying. It's a way of living. In verse 17 and 18, he says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When, when I started reading old, like, dead Christian authors, um, uh, there was something interesting that I, I noticed, is that they use di- language, even, like, these are English writers, they use the language a lot differently than us. And it, I had to learn how, how they spoke, and they, like learning a different dialect. Uh, but sometimes how word uses changes actually gives us insight into how our perspectives and priorities have changed. So one example is the word of charity. 
It's like when I read Puritan authors, for example, they're always talking about charity like it's a synonym for love. And of course, it was at the time. It was the Christian sense of love. But now, in our common parlance, uh, the word charity simply means what? It means giving to the needy, giving to the poor. Why is that? Because giving to those in need was such an integral and essential and obvious aspect of true Christian love. And as our ideas of love migrated away from the generous, compassionate elements, we... uh, isolated it to the word charity so that we could free the word love to embody our ideas of romance and affection and and personal preference. And we've created an unnatural division that didn't always exist. And this text calls us to correct it and reunite charity and love once again. And if, if you have the world's goods and see a brother in need, yet close your heart against him, How does God's love abide in you? See how he's uniting the ideas of charity and love here? When God's love abides in you, it opens your heart towards those in need. Rather than, well, he says not closing it against them. Open your heart to those in need is what God's love does in us. And here's an interesting thing about the Greek and New Testament Sometimes when it talks about our heart, it uses the word cardia. I would say most of the time. Uh, it, that sounds familiar, right? Cardiology, right? Like, uh, but sometimes what we see translated as heart is actually the word splagnon, which is a much more fun word, and it actually means intestines or bowels. And doesn't that word just sound like it means guts? Splagnon. And so he's saying, that, and that's the word we see here. So when he, he's saying, literally, open your bowels towards people. That's the literal meaning. But the figurative meaning is compassion and affection. It's more of the idea of like a feeling deeply for people, that we, that we care for them deeply in the depths of our body and our soul. And I'm teaching this men's course during the 9 o'clock hour for the next several weeks on manliness. And one of the, the, the key, so, and so the first couple sessions, what I'm doing is I'm identifying the way that Jesus balanced typical manly virtues with other virtues to create a new kind of manliness, a manliness from above. And, and one of the key balanced virtues I'll talk about is compassionate courage. Because men ought to be courageous. I feel like that's intuitive, that's true, and it's right. At one point, the Apostle Paul even uses the phrase, act like men, as a synonym for courage, be courageous. But then he follows that up by directly saying that in the very next verse, let all that you do be done in love. This is because Jesus was courageous in his compassion. When our courage is not marked by Christ, it can become boisterous and brash rather than compassionate and caring. But Jesus was the most courageous man as well as the most compassionate man to ever live. And the theologian B.B. Warfield noted that it's actually really surprising that Jesus is so often described in the Gospels as, as being compassionate because that word was so rare at that point in time in history. It's almost like they, had to, they needed a new word for how Jesus felt and acted toward people. He really did feel deeply. It wasn't merely a cold act of will when he served people. He had affection and sympathy for them. And we too are called to feel with people. 
like we are opening ourselves up to them. And I think that the fact that Jesus' courage was balanced with compassion is important for how we relate to persecution. In verse 13 of our text, he says, John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And he hints at the reason why we'll be hated. Because he tells us not to be like Cain, who murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So what he's saying is, don't be like Cain and don't be surprised when you're treated like Abel. Cain was jealous of, because Abel's righteousness made him look bad. So if we're to be hated like that, we should only be hated because our deeds of love and righteousness make the world envious. It should not be because we are bold in our rhetoric and unkindly condemning and judgmental. It should be because we are courageously compassionate. And sometimes the Bible tells us that the world will glorify God because of our good deeds. And other times it says that they'll hate us and mock us. In fact, I was just reading about how the oldest, this is really interesting, the oldest existing depiction of Jesus on the cross that we have today is actually graffiti that someone made to mock a Christian man named Alexamenos in the year 200. It has a man, the, the picture is a man looking up at Jesus who's being crucified, and, and it says, Alexamenos worships his God, and Jesus has the head of a donkey. It's mocking him for worshiping the foolish God who would die on a cross. The earliest surviving depiction of our crucified Savior was intended to mock him and one of his followers. This is not new. This is why we need courage with our compassion. John goes on to say, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I love, what I love about that is that that last part is that we would often pair truth with what? With words and talk, wouldn't we? That's generally how we think about it. But he pairs truth with deeds. Let us not be full of rhetoric regarding love or full of empty words, but let us act out the truth. This is what love is like. The next question I have about love, though, is where does it come from? Because John teaches that obedience of love is like offering to God what is his already. It's like when in grade school, whenever the school would host this little pop-up shop around Christmas time with little like cutesy trinkets and things so that kids could buy presents for their family. And I'd go home and I'd ask mom and, and say, dad and say, can I have some money so I can buy you a present? And they'd be like, sure. And they'd be all happy about me buying them a present with the money that they gave me. And th- that's what he teaches is that we live and love out of the resources God's Spirit provides. Love is not merely something we muster up on our own. It's something that springs forth from us when we are filled by the life of God. You check the life of a tree by whether or not it sprouts leaves. You check the life of a believer by whether or not they sprout love. Verse 7, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 15, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
Verse 17, if we close our hearts, how does God's love abide in us? You see, he's saying that if God's love is in you, it naturally produces the fruit of love. This is why when we love as he loved, it reassures our hearts before him. But of course, if we examine our lives and we find that love lacking, well, then we're, we may not gain the assurance we hoped for. So then we find ourselves at that point that I opened the sermon with. How do you respond at that moment? Do you hang your head and retreat in shame? Do you anxiously redouble your efforts? Do you say, well, it's not really that big of a deal if I'm living in alignment with God's will for my life? All of those are fatally flawed responses. What we, we, we are called to remember that, that, that love is the outworking of faith. Faith working through love. And faith is believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what is John's word to us in this text when our hearts condemn us? I love this verse. Look at verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. What John is doing in this text is reorienting us off of ourselves and toward God, which is the only way to truly live. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful classic, Mere Christianity, which I recommend highly, he wrote this. He says, Though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules, guilt and virtue, Yet it leads you on out of all of that, into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness, as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not thinking of it. They're too busy looking at the source from which it comes. I love that so much. The fruit comes when we're looking at the source from which it comes. The passage Pastor Tim preached on last week, John says that amazing statement, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Why will we be like him? Because we will see him as he is. How do we ultimately become like him? By beholding his glory. And as I've meditated on that verse, I've thought, well, if that's true about our ultimate transformation, wouldn't it be true about our, our progressive transformation now? Indeed it is. We grow and produce fruit by beholding him with the eyes of our hearts. Now is in a mirror dimly, Paul says, but then face to face. This is what faith really is a relentless focus on Christ to the point of forgetting ourselves. Like when Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me. A complete orientation of our hearts and our minds and our lives toward Christ Jesus. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. In other words, don't follow the worldly wisdom that's really foolishness that says, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Lead your heart.
toward Christ Jesus. Jesus says, do, he, he didn't, Jesus didn't say, don't let your heart be troubled, just follow your heart. No, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Our hearts are meant to be led and directed rather than followed. Proverbs says that this is a mark of wisdom when it says, be wise and direct your heart in the way. Instead of being fixated on what our heart says, let's be fixated on what God says. And he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ. That's the beginning of Romans 8. And a few verses later in that chapter, he says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So my question for you is, what is your mind set on? God knows human beings are mirrors. We reflect what we're aimed at. The most notable aspect of this reflection is how we relate to other people. Those who are aimed at their appetites treat people as objects or interruptions. Those who are aimed at their ambitions treat people as partners or pawns. Those who are aimed at, their, at approval relate to people paradoxically as masters and servants. But those who are aimed at the Almighty relate to people as his images and as dearly beloved loved ones. Each of those, those errors that I mentioned earlier, they're aimed at self, right? If we languish, languish in shame, we're not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ to really pay for our sins. If we try to earn our standing by our moral effort, we're not trusting in the grace of God as a truly free gift. If we settle for an unchanged life with, where God is in the margins, we're not, so that we're not bothered by our sin because we're keeping God at arm's length so that his holiness never convicts us, well, then we're not trusting in the power of God and the goodness of God to really change us and for it to be worth it. All of those are the advice that our, that our heart gives us from time to time. But the Bible tells us our hearts are diseased. Our job is to quiet the voice of our heart and to listen to that other voice. To drown out the competing voices with the greater and more glorious voice of God and let his voice come in, let his life flow in and fill us up each morning, each moment. Take our eyes off of self and lift them higher. Because a part of our heart's sickness is how fickle it is. It, it's always being tossed to and fro by waves. Our moods are always changing. Our confidence waxes and wanes. Our desires rage and subdue. Our happiness ebbs and flows. We have got to have something anchoring us. We need someone more stable than us to be in charge of us. Faith is not automatic in hearts like ours. It must be fueled and refocused and maintained. It's like anything in this world of decay. Some of you know that I'm in the arduous process of restoring a historic home. And why is it so hard? Because it wasn't maintained. 
So it was left to drift into disrepair. And through this process, I've learned a lot from restorers online. And one claim that with about a full week's worth of work spread out throughout the year of maintenance, historic buildings can be kept from becoming broken down and dilapidated. But without regular maintenance, like anything else, they're headed down a bad path. It's the same way with faith. We've always got to be turning again, refocusing on what's true, on who is most important, reorienting ourselves on him, aiming our lives at him. And as we do, his glory is of such a nature that it will change us and produce fruit in us. So when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. Why do you think John adds that last part about God knowing everything? I think it's because in order to really be in the kind of relationship we need with God, we can't have any illusions of keeping things from him. We can't come in wearing masks and hiding things in closets. We need to know that when he welcomes us in, he sees the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. He sees our most vile motivations and desires. He knows all of our failures. He even knows the myriad of sins and evils that we are unaware of ourselves. He knows everything. And he loves you. When we feel condemned and guilty, our instinct is to hide. When we pray, we do some of our best pretending, don't we? We don't pray in truth, but out of our religious goodness, we send our buttoned-up, cleaned-up versions of ourselves into prayer. But this is how devotion dies. We're not fooling God. The only way to meet with Him is in reality. He knows who you are who you really are. You need to know this so that your struggles and your shortcomings are not pushed under the rug, but actually can become invitations from God to meet with him here in reality. You need to know that he knows everything so that you can hear really and truly hear and believe the gospel and receive it as the incredible good news that it really is, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can come boldly before the throne of grace precisely because it is a throne of grace. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is and what he has done on your behalf. Believe in his name and the result will be love in his name. And the result of that will be a reassured heart before him and confidence before him. And the result of that, he tells us, is answered prayer. Look at verse 21 through 23. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So there's another assumption here. He assumes that you'll be praying because he knows that prayer is a natural instinct of humanity. Of all of humanity, you've heard it said there's no atheists in the foxhole, right? That even people who usually pay God no mind, they turn to him at their most desperate moments. Well, Christians are simply those people who recognize all of life as the foxhole. That we are always desperately in need of him. But John explains that not all prayers are created equal. 
But that real prayer is also the fruit from a certain kind of tree. A tree marked by faith and love. And this is the kind of prayer that is answered, he says. Not because obedience and faith, not, not because the obedience of faith and love earn answered prayer. That's not what he's saying, because faith is the acknowledgement that we can't earn anything before God. So what he's actually saying is that prayer is something we enter into rather than something we initiate. That's how we need to think of it. Like, if you think about it as a dinner that God is inviting you to, he's a generous king inviting you to lavish his, his, uh, his goodwill on you. Well, faith is the front door. Coming in through the door is not earning the feast. It's simply entering it. And love is his agenda for the evening. And within his agenda for the evening, he is willing to spare no expense. But if you come in with another agenda, he's happy to have you, but you'll understand if he won't necessarily be bending over backwards for your every demanding whim. In fact, while you're there, he'll be trying to convince you to join him and his guests on his agenda for the evening because it's better than yours and he will meet every need. So as we're aligned with the entry and the agenda, we experience the extravagant goodness of God. So we see what I'll call the side effects of, of in this text, the side effects of faith working through love. Might not be a good word, but what happens because of it, we, we see assurance. Second is some people will hate us. Third is answered prayer. And fourth, and I think this is the greatest of all, This is found in verse 22. He says we do what pleases him. The pleasure of God in the life of faith and love is the greatest of joys for us who who love him. This incredible truth that beyond all hope and almost beyond belief that we please him whom we were created to please. Our faith, rightly understood, though, it, it removes any illusion that this is because we are so great in ourselves, So that without a hint of self-righteousness, we can innocently rejoice in who God has made us to be. And this this is the incredible antidote that, that heals our shame while destroying our pride. Because we can read that text that I read in Galatians 5 where he says the only thing that matters in Christ Jesus is faith working through love. And we can think of that merely as a rebuke against legalistic rituals. Which it is, but embedded in there is the astounding fact that in Christ Jesus, our faith working through love really matters. It matters to him. It pleases him. We have the incredible promise that is only possible by the work of Christ that we rugged and ragged sinners can stand before God and hear him say with a smile more joyful than we've ever known, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us lean in to this God. Don't run and hide in shame. Don't count on your own goodness and your own works. Don't be complacent and settle for less than him. Live in deep, dependent faith in Christ alone. And love as he loved you with courageous compassion. Let's pray. Our Father... Our hearts do often condemn us. But we know that you are greater than our hearts. 
and you know everything. Strengthen our faith. Direct our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, toward you and you alone. Grant us the precious fruit of your Spirit, which is love. Love for our brothers that is both deep affection and sympathy as well as committed and costly action on their behalf. We thank you for your Son and your Spirit and the union we share because of your own great love for us. Reassure our hearts before you that we may not look at ourselves and feel out of place in your presence, but see your face welcoming us and drawing us in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.